gentle listener, and welcome to Michael and Ethan in a room with scotch. It's not about the scotch, we promise. I'm your host, Michael Lilienthal, but this is my guest, Ethan Bartlett. Hi, I'm Michael's mom. Okay, Again, you... don't abuse the fact that the rules aren't in effect yet to talk about my mom. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's not even what I was doing. Oh. <laughs> I was just, like, doing something you wouldn't expect so you couldn't accuse me of doing the thing every time. Uh, okay, alright. So Should I try just... again? Should I try again? Yes. All right. This is my guest, Ethan Bartlett. I'm Michael's mom, and I'm a very lovely lady. <sighs> See? Fine. Okay. Do I listen to this show? I don't know. <laughs> <gasps> I don't know. My mom does. I think my sister does. Okay. So she'll well, report back. She'll report us Patty, both. Patty, tell night. mom what Ethan just said. That she's very lovely. <laughs> and excellent. And stuff. Uh, and also, I'm... My mom would listen to this show, but she can't figure out how the internet works. <laughs> uh, Even though podcasts are all just on cassette tapes, which no, were invented like a no. hundred and fifty years ago. <laughs> in in 1263. <laughs> oh, yes, wow. gentle listener, we are still drinking the Dalmar 12 year. Yeah, it's been uh, which... two weeks. This has been a... This has been a roaring one. Yeah. Uh, Rip roaring thing. Rip roaring thing. That should be our actual motto, probably. This podcast is a rip roaring thing. (laughs) Yeah. Michael and Ethan in a room with scotch. It's a rip roaring thing. It's not (laughs) about the scotch. Uh, we need a few more mottos. Yeah. So anyway. We'll work on it. We'll, yep. we'll, we'll put that on uh, one of those burners that we've got. We've got like eight stoves now. <laughs> it's pretty dangerous, I think. It's a pretty bad fire hazard. Yeah. Uh. Uh, it's okay. We'll just uh, pretend it's not happening, and therefore for our reality, it's not happening. Yeah, that seems like definitely not the exact opposite of everything we just have been freaking saying about this book two weeks ago. What? You mean the book by at Neil himself, The Ocean at the End of the Lane? Yes, the book by Neil Gaiman, <laughs> who's a real person <laughs> with a human body and not just a Twitter robot. <laughs> I never claimed he was a Twitter robot. You didn't have to. You implied it. I heavily. implied nothing. Are you implying that he's both a Twitter robot and a person oh look i can do it too good job i'm proud of you don't be proud of me that's not what i wanted (laughs) i'm so proud of you i why why do you grow up so fast why do you continue to hurt me with your pride (laughs) because you're just so cute and other discarded titles for the lion king Uh. (laughs) oh he was hurt with a herd though uh you know you know there's a time when being pedantic is not actually that amusing. <laughs> is it ever? <laughs> That's my question. Ever amusing or ever not? Boom! Oh. Look, I can be pedantic too. Oh! Aha. And do the whole Schrodinger's cat thing again. Oh, shoot. You did that too. It's oh, both shoot. and. Once again. I'm so mad at you. Oh, but you can't be because uh. you did that to yourself. Yeah, but See, you manipulated now I am both into you it. and me. Wait, does that make you a vampire? See, stop. No, just, ugh. Yeah, guess who taught me to see vampires everywhere? Yeah, that was me. Yeah, that was you. So, you're welcome. Thank you. No, okay. no, thank you. You're welcome. Karen, do the rules. <laughs> Rule one. Once the scotch is poured and the glasses clink, the scotch must not be mentioned at any time. If anyone mentions it, they lose. Rule two. 
no one's mother should be mentioned in any pejorative sense or any other sense not directly indicated by the text of the book being discussed. If any mothers are mentioned, the mentioner loses. Rule 3. Ethan must never say the phrase, first paragraph. If he does, he loses. Rule 4. Michael must never say the words, vampire, vampiric, or any derivative thereof. If he does, he loses. Rule 5. If anyone has to use the bathroom during an episode, he or she loses. However, this should not stop anyone from doing so because this podcast is anti-UTI. And what happens if someone breaks the rules? If one person breaks a rule, they receive a punishment in the form of a verbal stunt chosen by the person who did not break the rule. All that being said, everyone, drink responsibly. Yeah, Ethan. Yeah, Michael. Gentle Gentle listener. Thank you, Karen. (laughs) Alright, now we've got that out of the way. Uh, Let's clink our glanches. Glanches? (laughs) Seriously? Say, uh, all right, what is let's, let's get a clean take on this one. We'll be quiet. We'll, you'll say it again. We'll cut the other thing out. No one will ever know. You know that's not going to happen. I'm too lazy. Even <laughs> yeah, but it was a whole bit I was doing where you were going to leave it in, and then that would be funny, but now you've killed that. <laughs> or, have or have you? <laughs> ah! <laughs> so, look I am. Slancha. So on this garbage podcast, <laughs> uh, talking about this book, um, hey, can I start us off by reading from the reading group guide in the back of the book? Okay, can you hold on to that one second? Okay. Because uh, I just have a thing I want to mention, and I think it's like not a super discuss, discuss, discussing thing. Okay. It's just a, a little neat thing. So we spent a long time comparing this book on the last podcast to uh, A Wrinkle in Time. Yes. Just as we will probably spend a long time comparing our next book on this podcast to this book. Oh, oh foreshadowing! Um, and I would like to say that I had, I was paging through my notes and I had forgotten um, that there were a few that I could, if I wanted to make a stronger argument, that this book is in some ways a direct influenced by slash reply to Wrinkle in Time, I could. Mm-hmm. Um, and the neatest one uh, is from, starts on the bottom of page 20. Uh, and this is the first time that our narrator as a child um, visits the Hempstocks in their home. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Letty filled a huge copper kettle from the tap. She lit a gas hob with a match and put the kettle onto the flame. Then she took down five chipped mugs from a cupboard and hesitated, looking at the woman, who is uh, her mother, I believe. The so woman. I don't know if it ever says that she's her mother. It's implied. Well, she's the in this maiden mother crone thing that is what? extremely with extreme subtlety happening here. She's extreme the mother subtlety. mother figure. Yeah. She took down five chip chip mugs from a cupboard and hesitated, looking at the woman. The woman said. You're right, six. The doctor will be here, too. Um, And that is certainly something that, you know, works completely within the context of the story and these characters and Mm -hmm. everything. But also, it's just too neat and uh, specific of a reference to 
something that happens in pretty much the same position story-wise at the beginning of A Wrinkle in Time. Yep. To be a coincidence, I think. Well, um, when Charles Wallace, of course, as we discussed, to because we we're also delighted with this passage, first episode of the Wrinkle in Time podcast, Charles Wallace essentially does the same thing, where yep. before the people are there to need the mugs of things, he's making the things to put in the mugs. Yo. He like he has his chronology all mixed up, and then he turns out to, of course, be right. Yep. Um, no, and so it's just is like I said, I think it's a neat little which. I wonder Parallel. if that itself, like, the clairvoyant tea party is a TV trope. I don't know. And, you know, unlike, say, Neil Gaiman, I haven't read all of the books. But I <laughs> don't know if it would be any more than these two books. Sure. And I guess it would depend on, you know, there are definitely things that, like, if you defined that idea more loosely probably would fit into sure. it. Sure. Uh, yeah, I guess if you loosen it up a little bit, you could fit Just, Alice in Wonderland into it. Yeah. Oh, so. well, Alice, I mean, you wouldn't even have to loosen it up too much to fit Alice in Wonderland in there. No, I guess not. I think you're right, probably. The more I think about it, the more... If it's non-TV tropes, the TV tropes people need to get on that and do yeah, it. Yeah, because, like, what are you doing? You only have, like, 12 tropes on your freaking website. Yeah, lazy butts. Definitely, I don't open... Hundreds of tabs every time I fall onto that website and <laughs> spend the next seven hours when all I wanted to know was what the five man band and is. I don't know if Clairvoyant Tea Party is the actual name for such a thing, but it should I be. humbly submit it. Yes. Uh, and if for you, consideration and TV tropes, if you don't take it, we're making it our band name. Tim, 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 Tim. That's a different podcast. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Wasn't I yelled at to stop referencing way famouser podcasts than ours? Yes, I, yes, you were. But you are also me. And so I yelled at myself. Wait, am I both me and you? Yes. Until someone opens the box? Exactly. Then does one of us die? Bet you're sorry for your Schrodinger's cat <laughs> explanation now. <laughs> who says I'm the one who dies? <laughs> but you could be. I could be. So, so there. You don't know. Could be both of us, though. It could be. So it still could be you, then. So I'm going to say there's a 75% chance that you are at least one of the ones who dies, and that you're still probably sorry you didn't give us more of a chance to live. No, I'm still pleased with myself. Of course you are. I know. Uh, this actually <laughs> does uh, tie right into the reading group guide question I was yes, going to ask. I was going to uh, throw that to you next. Uh, the uh, first question... Now I don't, don't have to, but I'm saying that I am, so I get the credit for it. Alright, you get the credit, which means I get the credit, so... Dead comment. <laughs> Not sure I like this deal. I know. Uh, question number one in the reading group guide. It would be easy to think of the Hempstocks as the triple goddess, the maiden, the mother, and the crone of popular mythology. Popular mythology? That's what it says. What is popular mythology? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Is it just mythology that's popular? <laughs> mythology is popular. Because yes. that's not a thing. No, like, there is no culture of mythology that's just the popular. Yeah. I mean... Like, do you mean mythology that, like, is one of the handful of concepts from mythology that most people probably at least have heard of? Because that's a very different thing. Maybe they mean a concept in mythology that is frequently seen in pop culture? But maybe that's not what they said. And by no, maybe, not. I mean definitely that's not what no, they said. No, and I tend to just object to uh, the Reader's Guide things at the back of books anyway. I mean, we have a history on this podcast of objecting to them. It's true. And in fairness to the Reader's Guides, it's because they're always dumb. 
<laughs> yes, giving credit where credit is due <laughs> to the Reader's Guide things, it's because they're dumb. Yes. Uh, so and now that we've insulted we all publishers, <laughs> yeah, all like, of the I was publishers thinking, who listen to our podcast, I was thinking about having us tweet these episodes at Neil Gaiman, <laughs> but like, now if he listens to this, he's just gonna appear and kill us like that's maybe how it he works. already has but maybe he hasn't <laughs> but probably he has yeah you're you're reaching here real hard because yeah, like if neil gaiman decides to appear and like do harm to you he will do that like, <laughs> we are all at the mercy of neil gaiman he <clears throat> is you know one of the the horrid Things from the Cthulhu mythos. I'm sorry, Neil. We love you. I love you. I my mouth fell down a hole. Why do you think you can call him Neil? Are you on a first date name basis? <laughs> I mean, you think you can call him at Neil himself? So <laughs> he he presents himself to the world that way. He presents himself. I hate you. Were you gonna read more of this? Yes, I was. Okay, because so, I, I didn't actually further. read the question. I just read the first sentence. No, it was like no. Why are you doing this to me and us? So, the question, after talking about popular mythology... Two bodies mythology. made one in marriage, therefore, good night, my mother. <laughs> I think I butchered uh, that Hamlet quote. Go on. It's alright, it's close enough. Uh, Is this like when a speaker of a secondary language says something to a native speaker and the native speaker is like being very gracious and is like, like you butchered that yes but i do appreciate the effort <laughs> right. so i'm being nice now exactly yeah exactly. that's what i thought it was <laughs> didn't even have to trick you into admitting that no you didn't you're so cute <laughs> i'm going to murder you i'm going to murder you not and if neil gaiman murders neil gaiman first. is going to appear and murder me <laughs> And no one can murder Neil, Neil Gaiman, Gaiman. Please avenge me. Because he is immortal. Oh, <laughs> uh, yes. How do you think he interviewed Shakespeare to get him in the Sandman comics? Like, That's true. He obviously did. It's because he is the Sandman. Well, yes, exactly. Though yeah. so he's gone on record as saying people at, like, readers' events and stuff have been disappointed that he didn't, like dress in all black and speak in <laughs> gnomic phrases that he was much more affable and personable of a guy which like of course the real sandman would be right he's not gonna just do what you expect or read from the script guys duh right the sandman is not going to be what you expect yeah come on come on so expect the unexpected and therefore he won't be that either yeah are you trying to make a schrodinger's cat thing <laughs> <laughs> the question says in what ways do they conform to those roles in what ways are they different okay here's the thing wait wait okay wait are you done with the question yep, that's is the question. that the end of the question that's the end of the question what a stupid question <laughs> and also it's wrong it's just like you know how a question can't be wrong because it's a question <laughs> this question is wrong <laughs> Because, okay. and here's why. Tell me why it's wrong. Here's why. Why is it wrong, Ethan? Because the triple goddess is everything. <laughs> like, they inhabit the ocean from egg to rose. Okay. And, like, so any attempt to say, oh, they are this or they aren't this, 
is wrong because at the same time that they are X, they are also not X. And at the so same time that they the are Y, is, is Schrodinger's cat! Yes. I love it. <laughs> I'm so happy right now. <laughs> Do you know what I'm really happy with? <laughs> we broke the, the audio. The audio feed on the, the recording track goes outside of the recording track. <laughs> like, we just committed the audio equivalent Our... of when, in a comic book, a character, like, steps outside of a panel and, yeah. like, steps into another panel. I was, I was thinking that we just did the audio equivalent of Anakin Skywalker's midichlorian count going <laughs> off the charts. <laughs> Over 20,000. Yeah. 20,000 what, Obi-Wan? <laughs> 20,000 what? Yeah. Making the Jedi into a genetically genetic aristocracy. Not that I'm going to get onto that rant. Why don't you go don't, on with what you were saying? Don't get onto that rant. No, how, do no, you, how do you feel about this question that you just poured agree, into my ears like the poison that Claudius poured <laughs> into whatever the former king's ears so were? So much Hamlet this episode. I, there's so much Hamlet every episode. <laughs> I know. And the weird part is it's often for me. <laughs> I know. Weird. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's okay. No, admittedly, I know less about popular mythology than you do. <laughs> Are you really insulting me that way? Yes. Do we need to fight another duel? Uh, maybe. We'll see. We'll yeah, see that's what I goes. thought. Yeah. So, like, I I am a relatively recent comer to the concept of the mate, mother, and crone. Um, so I know less about them than you do, so I couldn't really even answer this question necessarily. Um... Because, like, I feel like the answer to the second part of the question, in what ways are they different... From the roles of Maid, Mother, and Crone are like the they're in a farm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's amazing! And also wrong again. I mean, you were destined to be wrong because the question was wrong, right? But <laughs> like them being in a farm is probably almost more of an inherent part of the throwback that they are to sure. like pre-christian british mythology right you could i almost said pre-christian british popular mythology which actually <laughs> would be perfectly sure. accurate, because, be accurate there because you know that, that mythology the was the ancient world's pop culture right um except as opposed to what we mean when we talk about pop culture now like the mythology was actually inherently a quest for human flourishing and knowledge of the divine but you know that's me and my crazy ideas so um i will also admit that like i certainly have done some reading about you know sort of Jungian concepts and other mm -hmm. um you know stuff that 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 features sort of the the maiden mother crone archetype um i certainly have not done what i would call a lot i would not call myself an expert and i would say that a large amount of what I know or have intuited about this archetypal figure comes from Neil Gaiman's works. Okay. Because they are in almost every single Yeah, one. they're all over the place, so... Um, obviously in Sandman. Yes. Um, they certainly appear in uh, American Gods. Yep. Um, I think Maybe they're in... that's what they mean by popular mythology. Maybe popular mythology is just American Gods. Oh. But, why wouldn't you then just say American Gods? 
Because Why would you abstract it like more that? More than I'm not going to defend the reading guide. I'm yeah, just not. don't. <laughs> so, yeah. This could be an interesting game, actually. Like one of us goes pro reading guide, and the other <laughs> one goes anti. I vote except... anti. <laughs> yeah, except I also vote anti. And I know you called it first, yeah, but too bad. So you're taking so, the ball and going home. That's why <laughs> this game will never work. Yes, I'm taking my my uh, maiden mother and crone and going home. <laughs> right. You'd like that. Don't you? tell my wife I said that. <laughs> I'm I'm pretty sure she's outside the the room now. No, so. that's your dog, who is named after a goddess. It's true. Out of mythology. Is it popular mythology? Is it popular mythology? I mean... I don't know. To, technically... To know that, we would have to have any definition of what popular mythology means. Right. Right. I would like you to know how many times in discussing this question that you read from the reading guide, <laughs> I resisted saying the word f***. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm proud of you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Because this is a clean, family-friendly podcast That's where we right. don't say words like that. No, we don't. Yeah. Um, I, I do have a, a thought about how the Maid, Mother, and Crone archetype fits into the story. First, can you do that thing you just did with your mouth again? <laughs> one more time. <laughs> Wait, a little bit. One more time. Okay, <laughs> we're good. Okay, you're welcome. Continue. Thank you. Yep. Uh, I should record that separately as a ringtone. <laughs> People. And then post it on one of those ringtone clearinghouse places as, like, just the worst. <laughs> yes. Probably get a lot of downloads, to be honest. Probably. Probably it would. Maybe I'll do that now. Charge, <laughs> charge a penny for it. <laughs> See how much I can get. And... Anyway... Um, All right, that's starting to be annoying. <laughs> Good. So I'm sure you're going to do it seven more times. <laughs> um, the that divide between generations, yes, is encapsulated in the maid, mother, and crone, because you've got okay. three generations there. Yes. You've got a child, you've got an adult, and you've got an older woman. Yes. Um, and so you've got those three different generations, and the question. <laughs> would seem to be like this this book seems to pose the idea that well you brought up that idea of the progress not necessarily being better or good just because it's progress or advancement right. so like that tying that into this generational thing adultness is not necessarily better than child that's very true um and different uh different like times and cultures tend to privilege Mm -hmm. different of these stages yes um and so a lot of if you trace this book's antecedents as we kind of did last episode Mm -hmm. if you go back far enough you get into some of these like the victorian and this is not a phrase i made up cult of the child yep right um and so in you know it's what uh oh shoot i can't remember the actual french phrase but i know what it translates into english it's king baby yes yes um and there was so there was this period within the Victorian era where ch- children were almost the phrase I want to use is fetishized, but right at least on in, its in surface the level sense. Yes, in in the broader sense that doesn't inherently have to do with sex, right? Right. Um, and I was going to say at least on its surface level, it was not sexual. 
Now, there are right. certainly a lot of arguments that are go to either Freudian or Jungian places or both, saying that this is sort of inherently sort of displaced sexual urges. And I don't feel the need to engage with those arguments other than mm-hmm. to say I'm perfectly okay with calling this creepy. Right? <laughs> sure. <laughs> the extent to which it was privileged. And um, so not only that culture, but like modern you know in some ways modern say american or western culture that fetishizes this and it is frankly sexual in our culture but fetishizes this idea of youth as sexy right like yep. you know uh clothing makeup uh down to surgeries and you know mm-hmm. um all of all of these elements in many ways for many years now have been uh, sort of slated to emphasize youth, right? Mm-hmm. Like, so you have blush and, on like your cheeks. Like extreme you have, youth. Yeah, and, you know... Um, it's common in uh, Japan. Too. Yeah, that's... Mm-hmm. that's which it, It's almost even more common in Japan. Like, mm-hmm. you have an entire subculture in Japan named after Lolita. Yep. Right? Mm-hmm. The, and, you know... Which and they like, claim isn't sexual, but if they read right, the book... Yeah. <laughs> Again, that's like... Disguised, but only barely. Yeah. Um, the Victorians, as usual, were way better at disguising their sexual urges. Mm-hmm. Um, but even in, you know, sort of modern American culture, you have this, this like, you have, like, very red lipstick, very, like, blush on the cheeks, mm-hmm. um, glossy hair, flawless, like, smooth skin. All of these are marks of, of youth. Like, right. you know, naturally occurring... This stuff doesn't happen in, uh, past the age, really, of, like, 18 or 19, right. by and large, or even younger than that. Right. Um, so, like, there's there's some cultures where you, you greatly privilege sort of the the child, mm-hmm. right? Um, and there, there have certainly been cultures that privilege much more the adult. You think yep. of, like, mainstream, like white culture in the 1950s yes um before sort of the the teenage revolution very much privileged the adult the the which is the, where the whole like children should be seen and not heard yeah they entered yeah. american society yeah um though that that even has its antecedents in the victorian sure, era too yeah. mm-hmm. right like um in in some ways many cultures but that was fetishize... more like uh, like that was still kind of, you know, to use your word, fetishizing child children because it emphasized the scene-ness. They were dolls. That's true, yeah. Um, but yeah. in the 50s, but, it was even less the scene. You know, they'd be seen as offshoots of the adults. As, yeah, as, as like, you know, children being one of the products of adulthood. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's it's a trophy on the adult's wall. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, there have certainly been cultures historically that privilege old age um, yes. certain phases of chinese culture yes. for example almost revere or african cultures yeah mm-hmm. almost revere older people almost as gods yep. like and especially in you know some of these cultures that do have sort of ancestor worship um mm-hmm. even in japan to the you know shinto mm-hmm. um has this idea of ancestor worship. And if, if you have this idea that, like, your ancestors become these almost ascended spirits that, uh, you know, that sort of become, like, almost maybe not gods, but, like, angels in, in sort of a, a Western nomenclature, um, you have 
this this again fetishizing of old age which is much less visual but it's certainly you know this idea that because someone has attained a certain age mm-hmm. they are the fount of wisdom um and i will say personally i'm the most comfortable out of all of these extremes with that last one yeah you know um i think there's a certain logic and especially mm-hmm. in more um sort of cultures that are less div- medicinally developed i guess where attaining old age was maybe the result of a certain amount of wisdom i remember Absolutely. having this conversation with a coworker a while ago that a thousand years ago yeah it made sense to privilege the old people as the like seers or the the fonts of wisdom because you had to be badass to get to old age <laughs> you yeah. had to you know have survived so much and made so many like both split-second and long-term decisions on so little information mm-hmm. that if you got there, there was a much higher percentage chance that it was because you knew something. Right. Whereas now we can, any schmuck can do it. Right. You know, like, you, you just take, you, you uh, if you're if you're rich enough and you can afford the, the medicines and the, the doctors and the treatments, like, any schmuck can get to old age. Right. The, the, uh, the mystique has worn off mm-hmm. from that. Exactly. And sort of what I'm saying here um, is that, you know, all three of these sort of, again, in the broadest sense of the word fetishes exist Mm -hmm. throughout culture, um, throughout history. Um, But in a very real sense, like a lot of dichotomies, they are separating out parts of a whole. Sure. Um, Because, you know... Every human being who lives to a certain age will experience childishness, adulthood, and, you know, old old age, age, being elderly, Mm -hmm. right? Um, That's sort of, you know, obviously not everybody attains all of those, but that is sort of just, in a broad view, the natural progression of being Mm -hmm. human. Right. Um, My question to you in regard to this is... Does this book fall into any of those realms of the fetishization? Does it fetishize, or even in a subtler sense, fetishize one generation Privilege, maybe, to use a less loaded word. Yeah, yeah, maybe Um, privilege is better. You know, that I could have maybe come up with, like, 15 minutes ago, but whatever. Uh, That is a really good question. Um... I think it does go out of its way not to privilege youth. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly not to, like, disparage youth, but also not to fall into this trap that a lot of YA novels admittedly do fall into of, you know, uh, sort of sort of assuming that because someone is young and can look at something with fresh eyes or mm-hmm. whatever the case may be, that they are more likely to be correct than adults sure um i know that you have said to me that john green often falls into this trap Mm -hmm. um and i don't necessarily agree about john green um at least certainly not all the time certainly some of the time i might but um but i also but i do agree about plenty of ya authors yeah. Right. And that's, you know, maybe and even with with John Green among other people like that's maybe part of the risk of that particular genre, 
right? When mm-hmm. you are writing a you know genre that's sold to youth, like right. your your success in this genre rises or falls on whether you successfully connect with people of this young age. Right. Um, and I've, I've heard one of and the, the main character like, of your story is going to be that, that age. age. Yeah. It's a very easy trap to fall into sure. to make and them always right. To an extent, I think Harry Potter fits that. Not exactly, because Harry Potter is wrong and the reader knows he's wrong frequently. Yeah. But he's also the hero when the adults can't win. Right. Or the older people can't win. He is the one who does. Although he still wins with the help of, you know, Dumbledore and stuff. And, yeah, and, and like, adults, Harry Potter, but... interestingly, and this comes, I think, straight out of J.K. Rowling's Christian faith. Yeah. Harry Potter problematizes that um, mm-hmm. risk by the use of sacrifice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, yes, 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 you yes. know, certainly within sort of, again, a surface level reading of a, of a Harry Potter story, mm-hmm. Harry wins and, like, is the hero and everything. And but, well, two things. For one thing, mm-hmm. um, Harry, like, he get, within the world of the story, he is made a hero, and that causes problems for him. Right. Which is a sh- more surefire way to know that an author is aware of a problem than anything else. Mm-hmm. If she puts it into the world of the story and makes it a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, secondly, yeah, Harry, you know, is the v- main viewpoint character... Um, sort of wins through in the end ultimately but usually to one extent or another and the later the books get the greater extent it is it's not his doing yes um it's because of the sacrifices of dumbledore and of mm-hmm. um uh serious black and, yep. and you can which are examples thousand... to him that yeah. to his own sacrifice exactly and even yeah. that sacrifice and the the resurrection that it attains is not his doing it's yep. nothing that that comes out of him sure. it's given to him from the outside by mm-hmm. grace um and so i forgot where i was going with this before we started making this a harry potter podcast <laughs> and not a notion at the end of the lane episode sorry that's quite all right. I'm never um, super well, sorry I, to I discuss Harry Potter. This thing that that element of self sacrifice is in here. Letty yes. sacrifices herself in some way. Absolutely, but like... put a pin in that. Okay. Because the question you had asked was, does this book fetishize yeah. or privilege any particular yes um, audience? And I feel like, as in somewhat of a similar way to uh, Harry Potter, this book goes out of its way to avoid that pitfall, mm-hmm. right? Um, and the narrator as a character is almost set up to avoid that pitfall by this tension between his memories as, like, a middle-aged man versus his memories as a youth. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I'm going to just say, for the sake of brevity, and as brevity is the soul of wit, I shall be brief. Um, <laughs> More Hamlet. <laughs> Neil Gaiman is mad. Uh, um, so, like I said, it, it avoids that pitfall. I'm gonna, I'm gonna just argue for the moment. Okay. Um, I think it does neatly avoid the pitfall of making the middle-aged person any wiser than the child by making the child wiser than the middle-aged person. Yes. Um, and as for the the age, I don't. No, 
Um, certainly Letty's grandmother, as mm-hmm. she's named, um, is the wisest character in this book. Mm-hmm. But because of who she is specifically and not generally, that makes perfect sense. Right. And she certainly doesn't have all of the answers. In fact, I think at more than one point she tells the narrator that she doesn't have all of the answers. Yes. Um, Which is really, really neat. Um, And may I... I I might answer my own question, but also I'm going to kind of spitball here a little bit. Yeah. Um, I'll I'll say this. It absolutely does not fetishize the adulthood. Yeah. Or privilege the adult. Anything that's it, the least privileged yes, if, part if, of this narrative. If if it, if it doesn't privilege anyone, it anti-privilegizes the adult. Yes. That's <laughs> yeah. what this book does. Absolutely. Um, the other question I have here, and I agree with you when you say it goes out of its way to not privilege the youth. Yeah. It very deliberately does. Um, here's a question that I don't know if I can answer is there another elderly character other than old Mrs. Hemstock? I mean, I guess the only... I, I, I don't know if there's any meaning behind this question. Yeah, no, it's a it's an interesting question, though. Like, even, even if it, even if there's nothing, um, like, because that would just leave old Mrs. Hemstock being the only very aged character. Yep. Now... The obvious answer to this is that Letty and... Wait, did we decide if she's Letty's mother? Or are we just assuming she's Letty's mother? I think she's Letty's mother. Yeah, it says... The the narrator calls her her mother. Yeah, which is as good as we're going to get for this particular book. Um, uh, So the obvious answer is Letty and Letty's mother. uh, Because, you know, they're both clearly ancient beings um, to one degree or another, right? Uh, mm-hmm. so, you know, that's, that's an obvious one though, but that's even that is absorbed in the end when on one of the last pages of the book, the narrator thinks he's sitting next to all three of them, finds he's only sitting next to the grandmother, yep. says it's only you. And she says, oh yes, of course it's only, it's always only been me, which is, you know, where I go with this whole maiden mother crone thing, because yeah. it's. You know, this idea that there are these three sort of different stages of life, Uh but they're all part of one stage. Yes. Um, With, especially with dualism, but also with this sort of, I guess trinity is probably the best word for it. Yeah. um, Idea. You have three distinct parts or or, uh, portions or whatever you want to call it, um, but archetypally and mythologically they're all separate parts of one thing thing mm-hmm. um which has obvious sort of connotations with the idea of the trinity the christian right. trinity um right and uh i think and i would have to study very carefully read some theorists and write a 50 page paper to back this up fully but i think you could read um the the uh three women in the story the the three hemstock women as analogs for the trinity uh-huh. um in some way and i i was tempted to say anti-trinity i don't think 
it's that in no, the sense I wouldn't that call like anti trinity. Yeah, in in that ancient sense of anti, like it's not an anti trinity as an anti Christ right. type of type of terminology, but it's definitely if you take um and theologically I have some problems with what I'm about to say, but if you take the <laughs> Christian Trinity as a masculine ideal Sure. This would be the feminine flip side of that sure. ideal. Sure. Um, and that's actually a fascinating set of ideas all by itself. Oh, yeah. That we probably could do an hour. We could do two, four yeah. hours. And I'm thinking on. of a book that I might be bringing to this podcast, which would kind of go into a lot of that. Okay. At some point. Interesting. Um, not saying shut up about it because we'll talk about it later, but shut up about it because we'll talk about it later. <laughs> <laughs> but no, um, so here, here's my thought on, on all of this is I've been kind of germinating this and, and taking in some of what you're thinking here and, and talking about. Um, I don't think this book necessarily fetishizes, fetishizes or fetishizes, fetishizes or it's privileges. A wonderful word that doesn't exist. I know. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, any particular, uh, group. Yeah. Uh, as much as, you know, the way I phrased my question and my pseudo answer to the question seemed to lead to me thinking that it privileged the elderly, I don't think it actually does. Um, although think... for a couple, couple things here yeah. that, you know, like I said, I'm pretty sure old Mrs. Hemstock is the only elderly character in the book. I'm pretty sure. Unless you've got like a side character, like maybe the doctor or one of the police officers, or something. I guess the but, like, only is kind of mentioned, but yeah, the only thing I I would really feel potentially able to hang my hat on mm-hmm. would be uh, the uh, Ursula Monkton, the the monk. sure, but even her, but she again, presents herself as an adult, exactly, and also that being as a whole, you would call it ancient. I don't know that you would it call doesn't it elderly. qualify. Yeah, it doesn't yeah. qualify in this. Which, to an extent, these three hempstocks also don't really qualify. Well, however, they present themselves as qualifying in it, these three eras. And here's, here's what I'm thinking is about: is an either or. The hempstocks are a both and. And that's exactly what I'm saying about old Mrs. Hempstock here. Okay. Because we talked about this in the last episode, where children allow themselves to be children and that's their benefit whereas adults don't allow themselves to be children even though the children are still inside them right the elderly do allow themselves to be children the the elderly are that paradox of adults who are also children well and and that goes back to sort of a i don't know if it's an archetypal but it's certainly a, a a um common i guess conception that many old people get to the point of where once you've lived a certain length of time um you don't have to care anymore yeah yeah exactly Um, you don't have to have these adult brittlenesses in your way anymore and it's it's not it's not that you've triumphed somehow it's just that you've endured yes and now no one gets to judge you anymore right and if they think they do you don't (laughs) care also the the there, there's an unopened box with a cat inside in this book, mm. and that is old Mrs. Hemstock. Yeah, yeah. Uh, she, of the three Hemstocks, she appears the least Yeah. in this book. It's mostly Letty, second most is her mother, and then old Mrs. Hemstock. Yes. Um, even though she's the one who's there uh, at the beginning and the end. Right. <laughs> and and uh, also is the only one who's been there the whole time. Yep. Though it's not for yep. 
Also, there's this question that never really gets answered, and maybe it's a reference that I just didn't get. Okay. It's on page one <laughs> of the book. Uh, not page three, not the prologue, but page one. Yes. Uh, which, the prologue to the prologue. The prologue which is to the prologue. Cheating, Neil. Come on, you can't. You're not on a first name basis. Buddy. I am now. Right. I have. Fine. I have uh, thought this into existence. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's right. Sure. Um, so I'm just going to read all of page one, if that's all right, because it it, it connects. All I together. will never object to hearing or reading all of page one. All so. right, We're reading all of page one. It was only a duck pond out at the back of the farm. It wasn't very big. Letty Hempstock said it was an ocean, but I knew that was silly. She said they'd come here across the ocean from the old country. Her mother said that Letty didn't remember properly, and it was a long time ago, and anyway, the old country had sunk. Old Mrs. Hempstock, Letty's grandmother, said that they were both wrong, and that the place that had sunk wasn't the really old country. She said she could remember the really old country. She said the really old country had blown up. Which is a friggin' stupid tease that never gets revealed in this entire book. So what is what is the mystery there to you? What what blew up? What's the old country? Oh, What's the okay. really old country? Oh, that's my question. I a hundred percent have this. I All thought. Right, thank you. I I pretty much thought, especially you, but also anyone reading this with any familiarity with like <clears throat> speculative fiction probably had this. But yeah. um, and maybe I'll kick myself after you say it. But okay. Uh. So, it was only a duck pond out at the back of the farm. It wasn't very like, big. The, the, Obviously, I get this, this picture of like some sort of fairy or something. Kind yeah, of here. yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Um, Go on. So yeah, obviously that's just foreshadowing for later, right? Right. Letty Hemstock said it was an ocean, but I knew that was silly. She said they'd come here across the ocean from the old country, which actually comes out in the narrative. What old country? sank beneath an ocean right. that seemed to have magical properties that maybe Atlantis. the gods were involved with. Yes. Atlantis. Atlantis. Yes, yes. I got that. Okay, so you got that. Okay. Excellent. And especially when, yeah, her mother, her mother said, said Letty didn't remember properly. It was a long time ago. And anyway, the old country had sunk. Right. What old country sank yeah. in, I'm going to say it, popular mythology. <laughs> what? Right. Um... <laughs> You know, which is is the the usage of that term now goes back to Plato making this into popular mythology. Sure. Right? So, I feel like that's fair. Right? Okay. Old Mrs. Hempstock, Letty's grandmother, said they were both wrong and that the place that had sunk wasn't the really old country. She said she could remember the really old country. She said the really old country had blown up. That's sure. what That's what mystifies you? Yes. What blew up? Okay. Like, so, Atlantis sunk, but what was right. before Atlantis that blew up? Okay, I'm going to talk you through this and see if you get there ahead of me. Okay. Uh, so, uh, Atlantis is this idea of a very advanced civilization right. placed in history at a time when, at least according to sort of modern history, there should not be any advanced civilization. Right. Right. Um... And that goes into a whole set of conspiracy theories that I love as story. Mm -hmm. um, I don't necessarily believe in a lot of them, but like they're fascinating. But sure. so it's this idea that um, before what we consider the beginning of recorded history with Sumeria and the advanced civilizations that sprung out of that, like ancient Egypt, there was this even older civilization that suffered some sort of catastrophe. 
mm-hmm. which Plato, when he uses Atlantis in a couple of his dialogues, describes. It's weirdly similar to, like, the biblical flood account, uh-huh. and also weirdly similar to other flood accounts in other mythologies historically, and also some ideas that are weirdly similar to, like, stuff out of the Hindu Vedas and, mm-hmm. you know, various of these other things. Again, this is all tying into the book that I might be bringing to another podcast at some point. So. Wow, I'm actually really excited for this book. Um, so, that's all a thing. Uh, and it, so it's this, it's this idea of, like, this very ancient, almost progenitor civilization. Right. There are sort of conspiracy fringe theories that, like, the Egyptians only knew how to build the Great Pyramid because they remembered Atlantean right. technology. But of this aliens! Okay, shut up and I hate you. <laughs> um, and don't get me started on how ancient alien conspiracy theories are the most boring conspiracy theories. <laughs> And are bad. Also, I'm pretty sure it's all demons. Anyway. Anyway. (laughs) Um, So you have this idea, this this very ancient idea. Yeah. Or this idea of a very ancient civilization. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, And that that sank. And and the, you know, the mother figure here remembers that. What would be before that? What would have happened before that? Creation? Creation... Which in a popular oh, scientific... In pop mythology. <laughs> or pop physics or pop whatever. The Big Bang. Started with the Big Bang. Oh, so that's what's happening. Grandma Hemstock remembers whatever country blew up to make the Big Bang. Okay, so, so okay, this so is we've like, got a cycle here going. Yes. Of like an ancient civilization being destroyed and beginning a new civilization yes. that is lesser but begotten from that, yes. that civilization. And, this and so places... the same sort of thing, all, like, Atlantis and all of ancient civilization was begotten from something in the Big Bang. And this places the Hemstocks because they were before that. Right. And their civil... So you could say that the sinking of ancient Atlantis sort of progenitated which is definitely a okay. word that is real, progenitated mm-hmm. our civilization. We've a lot of words on this podcast. Um, you mean mine real words that do exist, actually. Uh, <laughs> so the blowing up of this civilization that Grandma Hempstock remembers okay. created our entire universe. Got it. So you have these levels of meta, 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 and Grandma Hempstock is before that. Got it. Um, and that's where she comes from. All right, all right. Uh, I follow. I which follow. is why, is it... when I did first read this book, and the read for this podcast was the third read I've done from this okay. book. Second when for me. The first time I read this book, I did read this page a bunch of times before moving on, mm-hmm. and I did read it out loud to my wife after that. And then when she didn't react correctly, I read it out loud to her again. <laughs> As you must do with unruly yes. wives. <laughs> <laughs> and then she didn't react correctly again, so I explained to her why it was mind-blowing. And she revealed to me that she had got it the first time I'd read it. She just doesn't always react the way that I think <laughs> someone should. Sure. Almost as if being married is about... Being tethered to another human being who can still be somewhat of a mystery even after many years. Yup. 
Um, All right. Well, I appreciate so, that explanation. Yeah. Um, I think it still reinforces my point, though, that like it's still a mystery. Like that whole thing, it establishes sure. her in a mystery. Yeah. And therefore, absolutely. it's the undiscovered country. Yeah. That's another Hamlet reference. Yeah. There you go. Um. This this whole idea of you know because as you said, human beings do progress through all three of these stages. Not all, of course, but. In general, that's the ex- expectation. The human condition. To, the human condition. The human specificity. Right. Specificity? There you go. Thank you. Yep. Um, so, like... I don't know what you did with my one syllable before that, but thank you for giving it back. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> I'd like to just hold on to those ones a while. Um, just a trick. Yep. Uh, so, like, kind of looking forward to the undiscovered countries. Yes. The, having experiences that... One day you will know things that others don't. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. Is kind of what's being brought out. Here. And but here's... even still, like even like children know things that adults and the elderly don't. And right. Adults know things that children and the elderly don't. And el- right. the elderly know things that adults and children. So don't. this <sighs> leads, at least in my mind, to. A set of parallel symbolisms, of which there are a bunch in this book, and I don't think we have at least directly discussed any of them. Baptism. Baptism. <laughs> I was going to say it. I was going to probably take two and a half more minutes to lead to that word. I just didn't want to miss it because it's in the freaking title of the book. Right. So... But also, here's the thing. And again, this goes along with some of the ideas of... Just because adults think it's right or just because it seems like progress or it seems like the next natural thing doesn't mean it's good. There are two parallel baptisms in this book. Okay. And one of them is salvific mm-hmm. and one of them is almost damnific. demonic. Okay. Yeah, or damnific, which is, <laughs> again, definitely a word. Um, so... In being influenced by Ursula Moncton and and you can sort of intuit at least being uh, sort of influenced by her whole being and possibly out of his normal frame of mind, the narrator's father takes him upstairs when he misbehaves and essentially waterboards him. Yes. Um, And as I understand waterboarding and like the type of experience that the narrator describes it is like one of the closest things to dying Mm -hmm. that a human can experience without being at real risk of dying Mm -hmm. um and so this is like the horrific uh experience that the narrator has and you know his father sort of goes overboard with this punishment and we could do probably a half hour Discussing the moral quandary of whether his father is to blame for this or not. Sure. Um, but let's not. No. It's certainly a question that's worth asking and maybe worth discussing, but... We're not going to do it. We're because not going to do it. Because this podcast is worth less. And also has a time limit <laughs> um, that we're not going to meet this episode. I'm already going to say that. <laughs> we're so close. <laughs> we are, but maybe we can do it. Maybe we Go. can do it. Anyway. Uh, so. And that parallels... This baptism that does literally bring salvation and bring touch with the infinite, bring everything that the Christian baptism claims to. In chapter 13, but it begins in chapter 12. Yes. Yes. Um, Numbers! Right. Uh, So, 
Uh, that's just very fascinating. Because, yes. you know, a good author would have one or the other of these symbols mm-hmm. in his book and just sort of use that to make a, a specific statement. A brilliant fiction author like, for example, Neil Gaiman... At Neil himself. Would... <laughs> I think people can find his Twitter. He doesn't need you to promote his Twitter. Oh, okay. Um, I'm just trying to help him out. I, I, I know, know he needs the help of our podcast. super hard. Oh, gosh. <laughs> um, anyway. Uh, so, yeah. Now I forgot what I was He's a brilliant say. author. Yes. But, yeah. So, because he creates this parallel set yeah. of symbolism... He doesn't hand you any easy, like, allegorical answers. Nope. He says there are these things and they can be poisonous or they can be healing. Mm -hmm. Um, They can, you know, sort of brittly uh, close you off from the world or they can open you up to literally everything. Um, Or literalistically everything. And he drops that in your lap and says, here... Give this some Literally. pokes. Mm-hmm. How's how's it going? Are you finding the words that you want, or are you no, just saying things? There are no words. I mean, there aren't. Words don't exist. I mean, we are here also do. suspended between egg and rose. Yep. And there are no words. Are you calling me an adult? Yeah, I am. Mm. So, put that in your smoke and pipe it. <laughs> I will. <laughs> I will. I'll, Yeah. No, I agree with everything you said and tested and also just marveled at. So, yeah, is there anything else to say about this book? I mean, there's a ton. Sure. We could do a couple more episodes on this, but there's nothing that I want to say that is not going to extend this podcast by another half hour. Right. And manipulate everybody's time even more than usual. Maybe we better leave it at that. Yeah. So this concludes our discussion of The Ocean at the End of the Lane by At Neil himself. Neil Gaiman, <laughs> which I don't feel like we did... Dis- I don't feel like we did get at, like, most of what we could discuss. No, really, like, there's so much more we could talk about yeah. in yeah. this whole friggin' book. Stupid, stupid, S- stupid book. Stupid book. You know, see, we said you could read this book in the time it would take you to listen to both of these episodes that we've talked about this book. And you absolutely I have could. never been able to. But, exactly. I have like, never... Like, you could read, word-wise, like, physically, you could, but mentally and emotionally and spiritually... Yes. No, you can't. <laughs> like, I have never, I have read this book three times, I have never had a reading of it that I could do in one sitting. No. I have always had to read, like, I'm gonna say 30 pages at the most... And then put it down and let my brain just take it in. Yeah. And here's the thing, and I honestly meant to say this in the introduction to this book, but at a certain point in the career of a brilliant writer who practices regularly, there comes a point that I have sort of observed where that writer knows exactly what they're doing with every single word. Uh-huh. And the thing is, they don't... It That's not the only thing that goes into whether a book is a classic or not. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of Ray Bradbury's, like, best-known and most sort of read and taught works are earlier. Um, mm-hmm. Martian Chronicles, Fahrenheit 451 especially, Something Wicked This Way Comes, mm-hmm. 
Um, but it's in his later books where I can, you just, and this is just a intuitive, like very difficult to explain thing that you can just sense that every sentence and every word in that sentence is just measured. Like you spent so much time, you know, writing words that you just know exactly what you're doing with every single word. Yeah. Um, and you know, Bradbury's later stuff may not be overall and in sort of the broader like thematic and and uh, philosophical senses may not be as good. Um, and I mean that may I don't know, but I'm willing to say it may not be. Mm-hmm. But the prose and the the way that language is used is just as refined as it could possibly be. And yeah. The Ocean at the End of the Lane is the first book that Neil Gaiman has written that I feel is at that point. And that's the thing like, about a shorter work like this. It's like a poem where you have to be deliberate with every right. word you use. But I think if Neil Gaiman had made this book 400 pages long, it would have been the same in that respect. Sure. Um, I think American Gods is a literary masterpiece. I think a lot of his yeah. short stories are masterpieces. And I think Sandman is a masterpiece. Absolutely. But none of them have the um fidelity with language that this book does that's a good way to put it um and it's a way neil gaiman himself described reading lord dunsany as drinking the the literary equivalent of drinking wine um that if you read too much of it too fast you feel drunk and this is the first neil gaiman book that i have experienced that with yeah if i read too much of this book too fast I literally stagger when I stand up from my chair. It makes mm-hmm. me a little bit dizzy. Yeah, no, I, I am absolutely with you on that. Let's save the rest of that sort of discussion for the ratings, which we will enter now. Okay, excellent. <laughs> Let's enter the ratings. Um, I told you we weren't going to make our time on this episode. <laughs> no, that's okay. That's yeah. fine. Ratings. So, Ethan, what do you think of the Dalmore twelve-year scotch? Um, I would say. Wait, should we do this next time? I was thinking about that. Let's do it now. Okay. And then we can kind of come back to it next time. Okay. A little bit. Fair enough. All right. Okay. I was gonna say no. That's not the words I want. <laughs> okay, okay. Cut all of this out. We'll fix it in post. <laughs> exactly, as we always 100% do. Yes. This is uh, a polished, clean podcast. Extremely clean and polished. Okay. Um, I'm certainly not sorry to be drinking it. Okay. Like, you know, if I said to you, bring me a scotch, bring me a, a single malt, mm-hmm. um, I would in no way be displeased with you for bringing this one. Okay. That said... It certainly doesn't hit any of the buttons that, like, my favorite scotches hit. Sure. Um, I was wondering about that. Yeah. And it hits some other buttons that are things that I've started to appreciate more recently. Okay. Like, there's a plummy element to it that Mm -hmm. maybe I'm thinking comes from the sherry cask element. Um, There's, you know, that tastes like some of the, like... Uh, quinquineas that I've liked mm-hmm. recently um, that you know I do like that there's like a chocolatey thing that yes. that's interesting 
Um, there's like a thickness to it that probably again is is helped by the sherry elements. Mm-hmm. Um, probably my favorite part. There's a little bit of like clove, nutmeg, mm-hmm. allspice type like spice palette to it, mm-hmm. um, especially on like the finish. And I that was probably my favorite thing. Um, so certainly an interesting one. Certainly one I'm a hundred percent glad I have drank would will be glad to drink again sure um scotch rating wise i'm gonna say 3.5 out of 5 okay all right what um, do you think uh I, I i think like like you said i was wondering about the buttons that it would it would hit for you yeah um because i know you are a much more pd friendly guy PD and I smoky tend, i tend to go towards the smoke and like the too. sea salty right and it which, didn't have any find... of that and you'll find that in an Islay, this is a Highland. Right. right. So it's it's gonna be different from that sort of Scotch. And Highland like, is much more about balance, and I yes. get that and I appreciate it. Yeah. And so I was wondering how it, how it would communicate, because uh, yeah. I tend to go towards the Islays myself as well. Sure, sure. That being said, I think this is one of, if not the greatest Highland Scotch, single malt Scotch that I've ever had. Sure. It is absolutely delightful. You mentioned that thickness, that that plum or dark fruitness mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. in there. The chocolate was very much all over the place. I yeah. got it in the nose. I got it in the palate. I yeah. got it on the finish. Absolutely, everywhere was that chocolate. And like, I don't necessarily like using this word, but I come. I, I've I've used it for other scotches, but I think it really fits here. It's milky. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Which 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 I mean is like it's smooth on the creamy palate, almost? creamy. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's got it's got that that cream which I think is some of the chocolate yeah. uh, that that comes through on the palate and on the finish and but like you said there's some of that spice in there little little bit of bite but it's I think just enough bite for this Highland Scotch yeah I'm gonna and be... if you put any water in at all I mm-hmm. think it just gets rid of that bite absolutely though I like the bite so I sure. liked it less with water actually. yeah absolutely I agree with you I put a little water in it and like it it was a little different but I prefer it without it's smooth but it's... yes yes absolutely eh, not um, as interesting so with that I'm gonna give it a 4.5 okay because uh, I absolutely loved this sure this is amazing yeah no. Um, I'm gonna read the tasting notes full disclosure I read this before I don't remember what it said okay I remember chocolate being listed on here okay so okay. I wasn't surprised to expect to, to to taste it yeah um that's pretty much all I remember from when I read <laughs> it when I bought it in the store so okay. I'm gonna read the tasting notes here for this uh, uh, Dalmore 12 year and I know this is taking us over time even more Matured for an initial nine years in an American white oak ex-bourbon cast before being carefully divided. One half continues its maturation in bourbon barrels. The other half is transferred to 30-year-old Matusalem Oloroso Sherry casks. Okay. Complex yet balanced, the Dalmore 12-year-old is the epitome of the Dalmore house style. Aroma, citrus fruits, chocolate, and aromatic spices. There's the chocolate. Okay, yeah. Palette, concentrated citrus, Oloroso Sherry, and hints of vanilla pods. That's where we were getting that plum and dark fruit. Yep. Uh, finish roasted coffee and chocolate. There's chocolate again. I yeah, I and didn't. That I coffee, didn't say I think that coffee, coffee but... might be part of that bite. Some of that bitterness. Yeah, but there. also I think probably part of the spices that I was sure, thinking of. sure, yeah. sure. And so. it, it's an aromatic spices, which makes me think of like a bitters, which definitely sure. is part of what I was picking up there too. Yeah. With the Very when good. I said like spices and so forth. So awesome. Yeah, I guess I guess I would rate it more highly as like 
a sipping drink than I would as a scotch. Okay, okay. You know, if I was if I just wanted a drink of some kind to sip straight, certainly, certainly would be happy to do oh, it. Oh, yeah. But it's, it's one of those things where it's like if I'm in the mood for a single malt scotch, there are others I would go to first. Sure. So, so yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. All right. Uh, the book, The Ocean at the End of the Lane. Uh, buy, borrow, forget about it. Uh, buy seven copies, give all of them away. Read one, give all of them away, buy seven more, give uh-huh. six of them away, keep the one, read it again, and then also read it again after that. Um, I have nothing I know more I to say. <laughs> broke the rating system just now, so <laughs> that's okay. That's I'm, why you have nothing more. Uh, yep, I agree. That's yep. that's yep. I'm with you on that. Ditto. Uh, Black Falls, as they say, auf Deutsch. Yeah, we have gotten Stuta. Uh, yeah, ich habe niemand. Yeah. Uh, das, das ist alles. Das Sauer- ist alles. Sauerkraut. <laughs> uh, um, uh, all right, so, bookscotch pairing. Um, I do think that, like, with all the elements that go into this book and the way that they sort of shift and present themselves at different points in this book, I think this was a very good bookscotch pairing. Mm-hmm. Um, very layered book. Very layered scotch. Just um, did work very well together. I think that smokiness that I prefer in a scotch would have paralleled Granny Hempstock better than not. But um, especially with some of Letty's northern inflections Mm -hmm. when she gets worked up. But um, overall, very good book scotch pairing. I'm... I'm pleased with it myself uh like you said about it being a good sipping drink like it's a great one to just have yeah. at your side while you're reading this book and like let if, alone discussing it if neil gaiman was here reading this book to us this would be a very good drink to be sipping during that time i i would be happy to offer at neil himself or neil gaiman whichever one comes to my door <laughs> <laughs> a glass of the delmore 12 year uh to sip along uh, and talk about this book with him. Yeah. Uh, please, please come to my house, Neil Gaiman. <laughs> also mine! But mine first. But mine first. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, that's right. I um, just countered you by exactly paralleling you. What's up? You should put both of our mine firsts in a box. And then they'll both be there until you open that box. And yes. one or both is dead. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm the one who's alive. Oh, is that anyway. so? Anyway, yes. all right, next month, gentle listener, we will be reading the book Ellen Foster by Kay Gibbons. Um, it's uh, it's another short book, short novel, yeah. what, 126 pages? 126. Shorter page count, and I think the, like, type and margins and stuff make this book even shorter than Ocean. It might be, yeah, because it's, uh, it might be comparable. Comparable, for sure. I think Ocean's denser if one of them is. Right. Uh, Ellen Foster is a very quick read. Uh, So, Kay Gibbons, Ellen Foster. Uh, And the the author is Kay Gibbons. The title is Ellen Foster. Which... I did have to look at the book a number of times before I got that straight. Especially the spine is confusing that way. But 
If you go to your bookstore and you find Gibbons, you will find this book. Yes. You shouldn't look under Foster. Don't look under Foster. Look under Gibbons. Because if you look under Foster, I'll save that for the discussion on that book. Yeah, I was tempted, <laughs> to, I was tempted to say what you just didn't say, but yep. I'll also just say it. So we'll do that next time. So please feel free to read along. Join the discussion. Visit us at tapestryradio.org. Leave your feedback in the contact section or in the comments below our episode. Um, also, we didn't mention this last episode, but in uh, the tapestryradio.org slash scotchcast, uh, where you find our podcast, you can submit your homework, uh, your English homework. Uh, let us know what homework your English teacher professor has assigned you, and we'll take a crack at it. Uh, by no means do we uh, promise to do your homework for you, nor do we condone plagiarism. Nor do we promise to do it well. Right, Like, exactly. if you take what we say and turn it in, you might get anywhere from an F to also an F. Like, and not even a you D You might even get just expelled. Yeah. <laughs> Especially if they figure out about the whole plagiarism thing. Right. Which is a very serious freaking thing. Yeah, please, don't plagiarize, you jerk. Don't plagiarize. Yeah, why are you even thinking about this? I'm Gosh. very mad at you. I'm so disappointed. I'm, yeah. I more more better. disappointed, yeah. I just expected better. Yeah. Because that one hurts more. I know, I know. Yeah. It hurts yeah. more when you're disappointed. If yeah. you're mad, you know, you can it's, react. Yeah, but no, disappointment, disappointment is just... Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, so if you like what we do here each month, review us on iTunes. I think, uh, what do you think, Ethan? Five? Stars? Five stars. Five Definitely stars? five. Five, five I think is good. So I would say five stars or else don't do it. Right. Those are your only two options. But really, they are not in a don't box. not do it. No, but don't, but do not do it if it's not five. If it's not five. So put both of those in a box, and when you open that box, what you'll find you better is better be five, five stars, or don't do it, or or five, or five, because <laughs> uh, Neil Gaiman will appear, and he won't kill you. That's only for us, but he will shake his head disappointedly at you. That would hurt. Yeah, and that would hurt a lot. That would hurt a lot. That would hurt a lot if he did it to me. Yes, and I know I don't deserve it, but it would still hurt. You kind of do, though. Shut up. Just because you're wrong about Schrodinger's cat doesn't mean I deserve it. Am I wrong, or are you wrong? Well, both both of them are in a box right now, so we are both wrong and also right. That's right. So follow Neil Gaiman on Twitter, at Neil himself. (laughs) Follow us after you do that, at Room with Scotch. Follow me at Bjartlett, B-J-A-R-T-L-E-T-T. And me at M-G-L-I-L-I-E-N-T-H-A-L. Uh, also follow our network, the Tapestry Radio Network, uh, and enjoy some of the other great shows we have on the Tapestry Radio Network. Intermission, our uh, audio drama podcast. And Pokemon Rollout, our actual play Pokemon Tabletop United RPG podcast. I was a guest on one of the episodes of that show, which yes. was super fun. Um, it was a while ago, though, so... I don't think that's relevant anymore, but I'm But if you go back anyway. and, you know, marathon your way through, which we've had a few people do, and they say they enjoy it that way as a marathon. You know, yeah, you'll hear cool. me eventually. I don't yeah. remember what episode, 19 or 25 or 74 or something. Yeah, we're not all the way to 74 yet, but... Are you not? No, not quite. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the Read my webcomic that I write, and also someone who is very good and excellent draws, so... Go to it for the drawing, but also my writing is there. That's Pinporter Girl Detective, the uh, 
fairy tale, film noir, <laughs> school drama, except most of it doesn't take place in school at all, mashup, um, webcomic, pinporterdetective.com. Yes. And that's all I have to say. That's all I have to say. Are so you shut up now? Yep, I guess we're gonna shut up. So until I guess two weeks from now when we're discussing Ellen Foster by Kay Gibbons, we're Michael Nathan in the room with Scotch. It's our party and we'll cry if we want to. Love you, bye-bye. Bye. Bye. and obfuscation. Orally observed, gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. listener. Obviated objects of oblivion. Obambulating about. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. In the Tapestry Radio Network. Tapestryradio.org. From From our our fancy fancy to to yours. yours.